what Russ didn't mention was that I grew up with Starla. So her daddy was my home church preacher that uh, licensed me to the ministry. And uh, standing back there just now, listening to this worship, just brought me back to those days. Uh, it was a different style of music back then, but it was spirit-filled. It was just powerful. And Brother Billy uh, just really influenced my life in a powerful way. <clears throat> I felt the Lord as a young man call me in the ministry, and <clears throat> I didn't think it was going to get to me sitting, standing back there, but it just was just phenomenal. I'm so thankful to be here, um, whether I got to preach or not, just being here to watch you know, the, the worship team and, and, as you said, you know, watch as they truly uh, worship the Lord and, and call the people to worship. So, so thank you for that. But I am really excited to be here. It's, it's, it's really a highlight to get to work with them. We've worked with Russ and Starla many, many times over the last 30 years or so. Uh, had them in our churches, worked at different uh, conferences and things together, and I just really love them to death. Um, thank you, brother, for, for letting me come in. And I wish it could go on. This is the final uh, time together. Uh, if you missed the first two uh, sessions, we've already posted those videos at notbyworks.org. You can go back and watch those. Uh, at your leisure. Uh, but uh, I want us to close out our time together by talking about Israel in God's uh, plan of the ages. Israel in God's plan of the ages. You know, a lot of people, especially today, uh, with all of the misinformation and disinformation and lies that are being told in the media, don't understand what a special place Israel has in the heart uh, of God. You know, the book of Zechariah tells us Israel is the apple of his eye. I mean, that's where that phrase comes from. A lot of the phrases we use in English today come straight out of the Bible in our English translations of the Bible. Zechariah goes on to describe the return of Christ to inaugurate the long-awaited promised kingdom that we've been singing about this morning when he says, I will pour on, on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace. The coming kingdom really constitutes the culmination, the climax, if you will, of God's expression of grace. And this morning, I want us to dive into the scriptures and see how God's relationship with Israel illustrates and reveals remarkably His amazing grace. You know, you can't really understand God's plan of the ages without starting at the beginning in Genesis. You know, a lot of people think, I, I want to study end times, so they go straight to Revelation. Well, that's fine, but you're, you're doing it kind of backwards, right? God's plan of the ages starts in Genesis, as we talked about Friday night, and it ends uh, with the triumphant return uh, of Christ. And so, uh, if you trace uh, the, God's plan for Israel from the beginning all the way to His triumphant return in Jerusalem, by the way, in the glorious temple when the Shekinah returns uh, to the glory... Uh, to the temple in full glory, uh, you, you see grace. It's all about grace. Uh, you know, think about Israel today. Israel's not in the land in belief. Um, they're secular Jews. Most of their government is secular Jews. They're not even Orthodox Jews, let alone believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, but we support them because we know God loves them and God has a future for national Israel. And of course, there are many believers in Israel today, call them Messianic Jews, those who, Jews who come to faith. But uh, God's grace is, is all over Israel. And the fact that He's protected them, 
the fact that he has a future you know, for them in spite of their rebellion again and again. You know, we think of Israel's rebellion, we think of the wilderness wanderings, you know. Um, but go way beyond that. I mean, time and again they rebelled. They had bad kings, they had bad leadership, they made unholy alliances, and yet God has never abandoned them. So uh, what I want to do is start with defining grace. Before we can trace God's grace in Israel's history, we need to know what grace is, right? Well, you know, everybody knows what grace is, right? I mean, grace is what you say before a meal, right? Or it's a woman's name. Or maybe it's a beautiful ballet routine. Oh, that was so graceful, right? Or maybe it's just genuine kindness. I saw a book one time that was a very old book from the 1950s, and it was entitled, Grace is Not a Blue-Eyed Blonde. <laughs> pretty, pretty interesting title. But we've always got to define biblical words with biblical definitions. In the New Testament, the word is charis. It means unmerited favor or blessing. It's used 155 times in the New Testament. Unmerited blessing, unmerited favor. That's grace. In the Old Testament, it's the word chen. It means favor, same idea, used 70 times. Uh, grace, basically grace is undeserved blessing, undeserved merit. And I think the easiest way to really get our hands around the powerful nature of grace and what it really means is to, uh, to, to define it in relationship to its two counterparts, justice and mercy. So grace, justice, and mercy. How do they go together? Well, if grace is undeserved blessing, we need to understand that justice is getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy, by contrast, is not getting what you deserve, not getting the punishment that you deserve. And grace is getting blessing you don't deserve. So let me illustrate it this way. If, if uh, one of your kids, when they're younger, acts up, misbehaves, you call them, sit them down, you say, you know, did you do such and such? Yes, Daddy, I, I did that. Well, you know I'm going to have to discipline you, right? Yes, Daddy. Well, you know uh, you deserve a spanking. By the way, you know, I know that's a bad word in today's culture, but I'm kind of old school. Uh, well, you know you deserve a spanking, right? Yes, I, I did it. Well, if you were to give them that discipline, that spanking, that's justice, right? They did something wrong, they're going to pay the consequence. If you were to say, okay, well, this time I'm not going to give you that, that spanking, but you understand what you did was wrong, right? Yes, I'm not going to do it again, right? Yes, Daddy. That's mercy, the withholding of punishment, right? But if I were then to take the extraordinary step and say, okay, grab your coat, let's go to Baskin Robbins, I'm going to get you an ice cream cone. That's grace. See the difference? Grace is a gift. It's getting something you don't deserve. It's getting blessing that you don't deserve, unmerited favor. Or think of it this way, you, you were pulled over for speeding. And uh, as you see in your rearview mirror, that officer walking up to your car, you're clutching the steering wheel, and you're doing what every God-fearing, red-blooded American Christian does in that moment. What are you doing? You're praying. And what are you praying? Lord, please let me just have a warning, right? So if that officer were to give you a citation, that's justice, right? You exceeded the speed limit, you get a, a ticket. If he were to say those beautiful, wonderful, glorious words, okay, I'm just going to give you a warning, right? That's mercy. 
the withholding of, of, of punishment. But if you were to take the extraordinary step and reach in his wallet and pull out a $100 bill and say, I want you to have this $100 bill, have a nice day. That's grace. Undeserved blessing. And when it comes to our salvation, we see all three of these, justice, mercy, and grace, coalesce at the cross. And the best place to see that is in John 3, 16. We all know the verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now think about this. In giving His only Son to die in our place on the cross, God was satisfying the just demands of His nature. Justice was served. Sin comes at a steep penalty, and that price had to be paid. God stated plainly that the penalty of sin is death. And what most people don't understand today, even some believers, but especially unbelievers, about Almighty God, you'll hear people say, I don't see how a loving God can send anybody to hell. You ever heard that? Right. Well, they're missing the whole point. God never sends a single person to hell. Go back to the garden. God created mankind in His image, which means we have volitional free will. We weren't a bunch of robots or automatons that simply had no choices. We had to have volitional free will. That's part of the image of God in man. He gave us a choice. That choice was you can eat of any tree in this garden. It's all yours. It's all blessing. We want to have this fellowship together for all of eternity. But don't eat of that one tree, just one tree. And He loved us so much that He warned us about it because He said, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely, what? Die. Right. So that was a warning. And it wasn't a, like He was dangling some sick carrot out in front of us. Oh, let me see if I can trick them into taking the fruit. No, He was warning us. We had to have free will. That's part of the image of God and man. Now, having warned us, when we marched right over and, and took a great big bite out of the forbidden fruit, at that moment, it's as if most people think, well, God should have just said, well, no big deal. Don't worry about it. Uh, you know, everybody makes mistakes. That death thing that I mentioned, I was just kidding about that. Don't worry about it. But think about it. If God had said that in that moment, that would have proven right there from the beginning that our God is fickle, unfaithful, untrustworthy, that He's a liar, basically, because He said, in the day you eat it, thereof you'll surely die. So death had to be the result. But God didn't stop there with justice, right? He took the next step to create a remedy to solve the predicament that we got ourselves into. So justice was served when Jesus shed uh, His blood. So the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners, but the gift of God, the gift of God's amazing grace is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We go back to John 3.16. Because of sin, someone had to die. That someone was Jesus. And through Jesus' shed blood on the cross, justice was served. It should have been me on that cross. It should have been you. But Jesus paid my penalty on the cross. And, uh, you know, He's the only human being that had room on His shoulders to pay our penalty, Right? I mean, as much as I might love my children or love you or love my wife or love my family, I can't pay their sin debt. You know why? Because I've got my own sin debt weighing me down. So the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die, and that's why God sent His Son, born of a virgin, 
fully human, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, the only sinless human that ever walked the earth, and took our sin upon him at Calvary, paid that debt, and then he offers it freely to all uh, as a gift. So because justice has been served, grace and mercy are now possible, but only to those who receive Christ's payment by faith. Notice what Jesus says, whoever believes in him. The one and only means of receiving that gift is faith, faith alone. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. I have an appendix at the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, that lists all 100 and I think it's over 170 actually. But when we receive salvation by faith, which just means trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone, no, nobody else, nothing else, abandoning your faith and your religion, your background, your heritage, your works, your performance, your self-worth, anything you thought could get you into heaven, and instead saying, nope, I know only Jesus can get me there. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. He alone has the power to give life, and I'm going to trust Him for it. Right? And when you do that, two things happen. We see, first of all, we will not perish. We will not perish. That's mercy. Instead of going to hell, eternal separation from a holy God, which is the consequence of sin, instead we have mercy. We don't have to go to hell. We don't get the disciplining spanking. We don't get the citation for speeding, right? Only it's much, much more significant than that. That's the withholding of punishment. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, he has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. If you've trusted Christ, the judgment is gone. You never have to doubt. You never have to worry. Jesus says you've passed from death to life. In that one precise moment in time, Russ talked about when he came to faith. For me, it was as a young six-year-old boy. I remember it very vividly when I placed my faith in Christ. Uh, if you think back to that moment in your life, uh, at that moment, you were born from above, as Jesus told Nicodemus. You were born again. New life, spiritual life. What once was dead came back to life. And that can never change. You shall never come into judgment. Should not perish. But not only should not perish, but he says we have everlasting life. Here's the grace part, right? Justice the righteous demands of a holy God for sin were met when Jesus took our penalty on the cross. Mercy, we know if we believe in Him, we no longer have to spend eternity in hell. But it doesn't stop there. We have everlasting life. That's grace. Undeserved favor. Undeserved blessing. That's that $100 bill, if you want to look at it. It's that ice cream cone, right? Undeserved gift. So not only do we not go to hell, mercy, but we also receive the free gift of eternal life. Did you know that eternal life is a present possession? A lot of people mistakenly think that eternal life is something you get when you die. And so consequently they go through life because of all the bad theology, all the bad works-based teaching that's out there, wringing their hands wondering, well, I hope I'm, I hope I'm in. I'm pretty sure I have to wait till I get there, but I hope my name's on that list, right? You know, I was talking to a guy the other day uh, at a church, and, and he, he came up and I had talked about... Uh, the Vietnam War, I made a reference to that, and uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident and so forth. And he came up and said, you know, that brought back a lot of memories. He said, I remember every day looking at that list on the wall at our college to see if my name was there, to see if I'd been chosen in the lottery to go fight for this country. Well, uh, he was hoping his name wasn't on the list. But a lot of people go through life thinking, man, I hope I'm there. I hope I'm there. I, 
I'll just have to wait till I die and find out. But the Bible says you can know right now that you have eternal life. Eternal life is not a future hope, it's a present possession. Jesus says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. That's the gift of grace. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone, you've received mercy, shall never perish, and grace, but have everlasting life. Paul puts it this way, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now, faith's not the gift here. Calvinists try to suggest faith is the gift. Absolutely impossible grammatically in Greek. Uh, in Greek, the, the nouns and pronouns all have gender. The gift here cannot refer to faith. It doesn't work. There's no agreement there. The gift is salvation, just like it is everywhere else it's talked about in, in Scripture. It's an incredible gift. Faith is the means of receiving that gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're justified freely by His grace, Paul said in Romans 3.24. And again in Romans 5, the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded uh, to many. So back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That's justice. That whoever believes in Him, that's the means of receiving eternal life, faith alone, should not perish, that's mercy, but have everlasting life, and that's grace. So grace, mercy, justice all coalesce at the cross. Calvary is the consummate expression of grace. We talked last night about how Calvary is grace in high definition. John tells us, for of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. John was essentially saying that grace follows grace as ocean wave follows wave washing over us. Uh, some translations say grace upon grace. Uh, the fullest, clearest expression of God's grace is Jesus Christ, His Son. And that's what John meant when he said that grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Earlier John had written... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. In Christ we have, as Paul said, the exceeding riches of His grace. So as we turn our attention now to Israel, when it comes to the history of Israel, we see grace all over the place. Uh, now that we've defined grace, let's look at grace developed. And to see God's grace developed in this plan of the ages, we've got to go all the way back even before the birth of Israel to the garden. It all started in the garden. And notice the reference here to the seed. I will put, this is God talking to the serpent. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they sinned against the holy God. And God talks to them and then He confronts the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's God talking about here. This, in Hebrew, this would have been very strange for the original recipients of the first five books of the Bible, the children of Israel in the wilderness, when Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, penned those first five books. And they get to this part and they're thinking, her seed? That makes no sense. Her seed? See, seed is the word zerach in Hebrew, and it means male seed. All 229 times it's used, it refers to the male seed. So, it always refers to, sometimes it's translated offspring or progeny. But here in our text, uh, it's called her seed. No such thing. Females don't have the seed that comes from the male. What we've got to remember, Moses didn't make a mistake here. He's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. God's the ultimate 
author, when the Holy Spirit guided Moses along to write her seed, it was for a reason. Uh, notice in the New King James, which is what I'm uh, teaching from this morning, seed is capitalized, as it should be, uh, because it's talking ultimately about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Had He been conceived through normal male-female means, He would have been a sinner just like us. The Bible says, All have sinned, that wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death spread to all men. It's passed down through the blood. Uh, see, you don't become a sinner when you sin. You're a sinner from the moment of conception. David said, In sin my mother conceived me. We don't become a sinner when we sin. We sin because we're a sinner, and that's what sinners do. Right? Wendy and I have six... Uh, children. I was there when each one of them was born. Uh, praise God, what a, just a powerful moment and beautiful moment. And I got to cut the cord on all six of my uh, little children. Not too little anymore. Uh, but uh, my one son's 6'4". Uh, but uh, anyway, every time I looked right down holding this precious baby born just moments earlier and I thought, here's a little sinner, you know. And I'm not a prophet, but you know, it doesn't take long before that starts to shine through, does it? One, two years old, the terrible twos, you know. We're all sinners. So Jesus had to be born and conceived through the Holy Spirit. Still fully human, attempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Uh, but there's more going on than, than that here in this passage, because he goes on to say, He, the seed of the woman, Jesus, shall bruise your head. This is what we call the protevangelium. It's the earliest reference to the gospel, that this ultimate seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, is going to solve the sin problem that Adam and Eve just created. He's going to kind of rescue us and defeat the devil once and for all. Just a few verses later, we see God's grace when God made tunics of skin. Remember that? Well, where did these tunics come from? You ever stop to think about it? I mean, consider the situation. Adam and Eve had never seen death, right? Uh, some people say, well, how did Adam and Eve know what the consequence would be since they'd never seen death? Well, we were thinking of death only one-dimensionally. In the Bible, the word death is used in five different ways. This is one of the charts in our chart book. You've got five kinds of death in Scripture. Death always just means separation. And that's the way it meant that's the word in Hebrew, and, and, and they understood that. When the day you eat thereof, you will be separated from me. We will no longer have access. You'll no longer have that, that uh, relationship that you have with me as your creator, and you walk with me and you talk with me in the garden. That's spiritual death. It separates us from God. Physical death is also separation. It separates the soul from the body, right? You know, the body goes to the grave. Uh, the immaterial part of man goes immediately into the presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Eternal death separates us from God for all of eternity. You've got carnal death, separation in, from fellowship with the Lord, and, uh, and, and positional. But death just means separation. So you go back to Genesis 3. <clears throat> They'd never seen physical death. And, but because of sin, they, they had need for a covering. They didn't have coverings before then, you know, they, they walked around in the, in the nude, just unashamed and just, you know, that's the way God made us, right? But after they sinned, their eyes were open and they were ashamed. And in order to provide a covering for Adam and Eve, blood had to be shed. 
This is all prefiguring the cross, foreshadowing the blood of the Lamb of God. That The physical death took care of their physical coverings, but the death of the Lamb of God takes care of our spiritual separation from God. And imagine what that must have been like for Adam and Eve, never having seen death. These were animals that were like pets to them. They walked with, they talked with, they... That was what life was like in the garden. Adam named all the animals. And it was just a blissful utopia, so to speak. And then all of a sudden, to show the seriousness of sin, God killed those animals, shed the blood, and provided the covering. And that's a picture of God's grace. Going forward in time, we see Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Um, And then we come to the story of Abraham in Genesis 12, which is where we'll... Uh, camp out. The Lord God told Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. It was an unconditional promise of God that included the promise of land. It included the promise of seed. I will make of you a great nation. And, And it included the promise of blessing ultimately globally on the world. All of the families on earth will be blessed through you. This covenant with Abraham is what we call an unconditional covenant. In Scripture, there are two kinds of covenants. You've got conditional covenants, which is an if-then. If you do this, I will do this. And the fulfillment of that kind of a covenant depends on the recipient. It's a bilateral transaction. Uh, Unconditional covenant, there's no if attached. It's just I will. I will do this. And its fulfillment depends solely upon the one making the covenant. There are five biblical covenants in Scripture. The first four are all unconditional covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, and then later on in time, the land promise, which we're going to look at in a moment, to Israel. The Davidic covenant, the promise that there will be a line, a king in the line of David taking the throne forever, the son of David. And then the new covenant, the promise of ultimate spiritual blessing in the kingdom someday. And then there's the Mosaic Covenant. The first four are unconditional. The Mosaic Covenant is conditional. The Mosaic Covenant was just a rule of law to put in place to maintain order and so forth. Um, It was one of those if-then statements, cursing and blessing, Deuteronomy 30. But the Abrahamic Covenant is foundational as it relates to grace, not only in the life of Israel, but ultimately for all people on earth in the kingdom someday. So if you look at the Abrahamic covenant that came about before the law, Genesis 12, about 2,000 years before Christ, God said, as we pointed out, uh, I will provide for you land, make you a great nation, and bless those who persecute you. There are three components of this covenant, land, seed, and blessing. And over the course of time, God reiterated, reaffirmed those three aspects through three subsequent unconditional covenants. The first was the land covenant, Genesis 15. We talked about this yesterday. God gave Israel the land, very clearly spelled out geographically what that land would look like. It's 300,000 square miles outlined in blue there on the map. To this day, Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land that was given to them, unconditionally by God. What you see in red is modern-day Israel. So this is an unconditional covenant. Either God's a liar or Israel has a future. And their kingdom is going to expand, and the kingdom uh, nation on earth that rules the whole earth is going to be Israel, and Christ is going to uh, take uh, the throne. And and it's amazing when you see all the focus on Israel today. You see that little sliver of red on the map, all the nations surrounding it in green are Muslim nations, and yet they're, they're just obsessed with that one tiny little piece of real estate, and it makes you wonder why. 
I mean, don't they have enough already? Someone pointed out last night, you know, it's even getting more green in, in Western Europe there with most of those nations now, 20, 30, 40% Muslim, right? But that just goes to show you it's not about just another piece of real estate. It's about the Holy Land. And it's about Satan and his Luciferian conspiracy trying to preempt God, thwart God's plan. God said to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ, you're going to have this land. And that land is part and parcel to the whole kingdom program and the coming messianic kingdom during which Christ will reign. And so Satan is you know, using all of these you know, co-conspirators, these human accomplices to try to preempt that plan from happening. But one day, that kingdom is going to uh, expand. And so then we see uh, the, second, the next covenant is the seed aspect is amplified about a thousand years before Christ when God promised David that your house and your kingdom and your throne will be forever. Now, it, it doesn't take you know, a rocket scientist to figure out that Solomon did not fulfill that. Solomon's not still on the throne today. The temple of Israel isn't even around today. And certainly there's no throne there today. But God says that's going to happen. And then God used Jeremiah to, to delineate the new covenant and the ultimate global spiritual, spiritual blessings when God will be their God and they will be my people. It's not just for Israel, it's for everyone. In fact, when the new covenant is enforced, the Bible says not one person will need to teach their neighbor anything. Everybody on planet earth will know about the Lord. That's because he'll be sitting on the throne in the temple giving the state of the world address every January, right? He'll be the king, and everybody will know uh, who he is. So this constitutes God's gracious covenant program. But in the course of time, you see the Mosaic covenant down there. Again, that's a separate rule of law, conditional covenant. <clears throat> but the unconditional aspect uh, is in blue. And in the course of time, uh, God sent forth his son, uh, who came to be the sin penalty for the whole world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we talked about last night when we looked at Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, this was a, a sort of a break in God's plan with Israel. God temporarily set Israel aside. Paul tells us uh, that the law was put in place until Christ came as a tutor. But now we are living in the dispensation of the grace of God. Not that grace didn't exist before, but it's now high definition, like I explained uh, yesterday. And Jew and Gentile in one body. But Paul says this is a period of blindness right now for Israel. The whole point of Romans 9 through 11 is to explain that God has a future for national Israel. That He's not done with them. <clears throat> he answers the question, what about Israel? People misunderstand. It's a pretty simple section of Romans to understand. And God says, look, I chose Israel, and I've got a future for Israel. And that's my prerogative as God. Uh, he could have chosen any nation on earth. He chose Israel, right? And He's not done with them. Someday, He says, the Deliverer will come uh, out of Zion. Right now, it's a period of blindness in part, meaning that there are some Jews today who get saved. Not every Jew is blinded, but many Jews today have rejected the gospel, and, and some have gotten saved. And so, once the church age ends with the rapture, Israel becomes center stage again, Christ comes back, and the kingdom is fulfilled. Paul said, one day all Israel will be saved or delivered, is the idea there, when the deliverer comes out of Zion. And this is my covenant with them. So there you have it, God's gracious covenant program. It really constitutes the title deed to the land, which they have not yet had. 
and all of this attention that's focused on Israel right now, you know, biggest attack and massive war since Israel became a nation again in 1948, to me it's prophetically significant. It shows that we are living on the cusp of the return of Christ. The battle over the land uh, is, is crucial because it's God's land. Again and again throughout God's Word we see God referring to it as my land, my land, my land. And so God's covenant program is uh, crucial. It really is the crowning moment of grace. So we see grace developed all the way starting in the garden with Adam and Eve, through Noah, through Abraham, and in the church age as well. Um, you know, the, the, the grace is on display like never before now. After Abraham come, came Moses. Moses said, you have found grace in my sight. Uh, even during Israel's ups and downs and the wilderness wanderings, God's grace was there every step of the way. I mean, think about how many times God, God could have said, enough's enough, you know, enough's enough. Forget you, I'm done with you. But His grace, His grace. Jeremiah, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even when Israel was disobedient in Canaan, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. God graciously raised up judges to help people as they began uh, dealing with uh, these pagan enemies and pagan nations uh, around them. Nevertheless, I love that word, it's frequently used in Scripture to indicate, give us a clue of God's amazing grace. God will say something and nevertheless, right? There were no shortage of neverthelesses in Israel's journey. All through Israel's captivity, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. Zechariah says, grace, grace to it. And don't forget the verse right before this one, when he says, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What spirit is he talking about there? The spirit of grace, Zechariah 12.10. Centuries after Zechariah, as Israel was in bondage to Rome in the first century, Paul reminds us there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And in modern times, we see uh, once again, when many within the church thought Israel was done, for 1,800 years there had been no Israel on our Rand McNally maps. Nobody could have conceived that Israel uh, would ever return to the land. God's grace once again was on display, May 14, 1948. The Palestine Post, later renamed the Jerusalem uh, Post in 1950. What a moment that was when Israel is reborn. So grace is displayed throughout all of history. But let's look at grace delivered. Uh, based on the promise of God who cannot lie and His unconditional promise of blessing, we can count on the faith, fact that grace will be delivered just as it was promised. Not just for Israel, but as we saw in Abraham's promise, to the whole world. Notice what Peter says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise... That's us today in the present church age. Look for that new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are all heirs of the promise. There are four seeds of Abraham. Remember, Abraham, Genesis 12, God promised him, through him all the families on earth would be blessed. The ultimate seed of Abraham is Christ, but the Bible speaks of four seeds. There's the natural seed, which are the physical descendants of Abraham, ethnic Jews. Right, someone emailed me the other day and said, you know, Israel is, is a, you know, a religion. It's not a you know, nation. 
And I said, no, no, no. It is a geographic nation. It is a religion and it is an ethnicity. It is all of those things in Scripture. But the natural seed, as Paul talks about in Romans 9, uh, just refers to physical descendants of Abraham. And then there's the natural spiritual seed. These are ethnic Jews who believe the gospel. They've gotten saved, what we call Messianic Jews today. Paul was one of those. And then there's us, unless you're Jewish here today, maybe someone here is Jewish, but we're the Gentiles who've gotten saved. We're the spiritual seed uh, of Abraham. And the ultimate seed, as I said, of course, is Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.16 makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the ultimate seed. So we see grace delivered. We can count on it. Everything that God's Word promises unconditionally through Abraham, and then it's reiterated again and again through the narrative of Scripture, is going to come to pass someday. And for those who don't study it, who don't care about it, who don't believe in it, they're missing out. Uh, they don't really understand the big picture that the Bible paints about grace. And frankly, a lot of people today don't really understand uh, God's grace in their own personal life. Uh, you know, most people think that they've got to do something to be made right with God, to gain salvation. Here's how most people think of salvation. They think of it like a table, not unlike this one, and just they have to sit down at this table, and God's across the table, and they start bargaining. God says, I, I've got heaven. What have you got? And so they start tallying it up. Well, okay, I, I promise to make you Lord of my life. I promise to put you on the throne of my heart. I promise to surrender everything to you. I promise to stop sinning. I promise I'll never do that again. I promise I'll go to church every day. I'll give you everything. I'll give you my life. I'll give you my all. And eventually God says, you've got a deal. And they think of salvation as if it were some kind of a bilateral contract between us and God. But if we've seen anything this morning, we've seen that salvation is not a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral gift. <laughs> and in a gift-giver equation, there's one giver and one receiver. I'll never forget Charles Ryrie, who I had the privilege of, of, of working with a number of times before he died. He, he said, we've turned it 180 degrees opposite. Everybody's trying to give something to the Lord to get to heaven. I want to go to heaven, so I'm going to give you my life. And they come to the altar with their hands full of what they want to give him, and the Lord says, sorry, I'd love to give you eternal life, but there's no room there. <laughs> It's nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Right? Now, I know sometimes we speak of, we use Christian colloquial sayings, especially in, you know, Baptist churches, which is my upbringing and background, so thankful for it. And so, you know, we don't want to be too harsh when people say, I give my heart to the Lord. But that's, the Bible never says that. Not one place in the Scripture where we're told to give something to the Lord and to get eternal life. After we've received the gift of eternal life, absolutely, every day we ought to wake up and say, what can I give you, Lord? That's discipleship. That's, you know, not putting your hand to the plow and looking back. That's counting the cost, right? That's giving everything to the Lord, your all, every day to serve Him as a child of God. But that's not the contractual way we get to heaven. We get to heaven simply by receiving the gift. And there's one giver, that's God. That's why we just read in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? We're what? We're the receiver. John 1, 12, to as many as received Him, 
he gave the right to become the children of God. When I was in academics for, for 12 uh, years, uh, I taught adult uh, students who were most, many of them pastors, uh, and they would come in on Monday mornings having preached the previous day, and they would all swap stories about what the Lord did in their services the previous day. And inevitably, someone would say, man, JB, you would have loved it. You know, we had six people give their lives to Jesus yesterday. And I would always say, man, that's great. Did any of them get saved? <laughs> you don't get saved by giving something to the Lord. Let's use Bible terms with Bible definitions 160 times. That's pretty clear. If there's one thing the Bible's clear on, it's how to be saved. And it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's faith. Who are you trusting in today to have eternal life? And so people think of salvation as a bilateral contract when we need to understand it's a free gift. People don't like it when we talk about free things. It makes us uncomfortable. I can tell you, having preached the grace gospel for 35 years, small and large crowds alike, whenever I emphasize how free it is, people get uneasy. They just think, man, we can't get something as valuable as eternal life for nothing. We've got we to gotta bring something to the table, right? We've got to do something, right? Well, if that's your attitude, you don't understand grace. Grace is coming to the point where you realize you are hopeless and helpless and utterly, completely lost apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He didn't go to the cross to help you along the way. He didn't pay most of the price. He didn't get you 90% of the way there. He paid it all. And our only hope is to make the object of our faith solely Jesus Christ. So salvation is not a buffet line where you can say, well, some people say Allah, some people say Buddha, some people say baptism, some people say works. Uh, I think I'll just pick Jesus. No, no, it's exclusive faith. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's His words, right? We serve an exclusive Savior, <laughs> Nothing to apologize about there. He said it. You must be born again. So it's faith alone in Christ alone as our only hope for eternal life. And why does all this matter in a prophecy conference? It matters, first of all, because it shows us that God's promises to Israel are true and He will be faithful and Israel has a future. But it also shows that His promises to the individual are true and faithful. And when Jesus said, I give you eternal life, he meant it. He wasn't kidding. He didn't say, I give you the possibility of eternal life as long as you hang on, as long as you never really commit any really bad sins, or you know, as long as you keep on believing. He didn't say, I give you the prospect for the eternal life, for the potential for eternal life. He said, I give you eternal life, present tense, right now. The moment you placed your faith in Christ, 33 things happen according to Scripture instantly. Things like... You're spiritually reborn. You're reconciled to a holy God. You're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Name is written in the Lamb's book of life. All of those things instantaneously happen, and you are saved. So if you're here today and you already know the Lord, let me encourage you to rest in that security. One more story before I close. Uh, since this is an election year, I think this is appropriate, but years ago there was a man running for, I think it was Senate, and I think he was from Nevada, if I remember the story right. And he, when he was on the campaign trail, he had his little girl, uh, five, six years old. And, of course, the, the media would just dote on this daughter of his. And 
uh, they would come up, what, what, you know, who are you, young lady? And she would always say, well, I'm Senator Hecht's daughter. Well, the mom overheard that. And uh, she got concerned that her daughter might have an identity complex, and so she pulled her aside and she said, now, honey, when they ask you who you are, you're, you're not Senator Hecht's daughter, you're Emily. You're, you're Emily. Well, you can see where this is going. Next time they're at a campaign stop, lights glowing, cameras going, microphone there. Little uh, you know, Emily, they asked her, hey, aren't you Senator Heck's daughter? And she started crying. She said, well, I thought I was, but my mommy just told me I'm not. So <laughs> that created quite a firestorm. See, the devil loves to, loves to sit on your shoulder and say, you're not a child of God. You're not a child of God. Look what you did. Look, here's a newsflash for you. Christians sin. I don't recommend it. Sin is awful. It'll take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. But sin is not going to undo what God did for you at salvation. I can prove that we're sinners. I can prove it theologically pretty clearly, but I can also prove it anecdotally. How many of you in here know the Lord? You're a believer. Raise your hand. How many of you sin? Good, good. I'll get their names for you, Russ. So if you're a believer, rest in the security of Christ. Don't let the devil constantly tell you because of so much bad theology that every time you sin, well, you must not really be saved. But if you're not a believer and you're here today, today is the day of salvation. You need to know the Lord. Amen? Place your faith in Him today. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your amazing matchless grace. Even as I think about it and look at these verses on, the, on my computer screen. I'm just amazed that you would save uh, such a, a wretch as me. And uh, Lord, that's grace. That's grace. Lord, help us to live like a child of the King, recognize our identity in you, live out the new life in Christ. May our practice uh, reflect our position, we pray, Lord. And for those who don't know you, Lord, we pray that today in simple childlike faith, they would come to trust in you and you alone as their Savior. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.